pause for a word of prayer. Father, thank you that your reign is good news because you're a good king who is very benevolent to your subjects. So benevolent that you don't just call us subjects, but you call us sons and daughters. With that in mind, speak now through your word to your people tonight. Bless them, guide them, lead them. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you can go ahead and take a seat. So, uh, I don't know if you know this, maybe some of you from uh, a higher church tradition background might know this, but this is the last Sunday in the church here, technically. Uh, so, next Sunday technically is the first Sunday of the year in the church calendar. Uh, in case you didn't know, the church calendar operates on a different calendar than the rest of uh, us, the rest of the world, and so it starts next week, the first Sunday of the church calendar is the first Sunday in December, and then we begin a season of Advent, where, believe it or not, Advent is actually a time, you know, we're kind of looking forward to the coming of Jesus, and so part of it is we're looking forward, we're sort of anticipating, celebrating his birth, but we're actually, in Advent, talking a lot about his second coming as well, anticipating his coming again. Uh, and so I figured, since we're not quite there yet in Advent, it's the last Sunday in the church year that I would talk a little bit about the church. I would, and specifically tonight, I want to talk about, I want to talk about the messiness of the church and God's word, well, to the sinner saints that inhabit every single pew in his church. The sinner saints that inhabit that. And, uh, and to do that, there might be no better congregation to take a little time to look at than the Corinthian church. Um, it is my humble opinion, and certainly not just my humble opinion, that really no church in the New Testament is, um, is shown to be dealing with as many of the issues that you and I are dealing with even in modern American life today. It's just a very uh, similar type background. Uh, for example, uh, like us, the culture of Corinth was filled with debauchery, but also filled with greatness. And I think that can accurately be said of our culture, just as much as there might be problems, there's also a, a real sense of greatness around us. Uh, like us modern Americans, at least uh, the majority, and certainly statistically when you compare it, uh, the culture of Corinth was very wealthy, and uh, the culture of America is very wealthy. And like us, the culture of Corinth was very diverse. It dealt with um, all sorts of problems as a result of these sort of mixed uh, uh, things that they were dealing with, being debauched and yet at the same time having greatness, being wealthy and diverse. There was issues in the church. And so if you read through the letter, you'll see that there was a real bad division and there was class warfare and there was greed and there was sexual immorality and there was uh, marital struggles and there was addiction and there was drunkenness and there was, well, I mean, all the stuff that we still deal with today. And so... Where do you begin with a church with that kind of track record that's filled with the messiness of human life? Well, this is the way Paul begins. Chapter 1, verses 2 through 9. Paul in verse 1 sort of just says like, hi, I'm Paul. But then verse 2, he says, 
to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. End of reading. So then, how does Paul start off this correspondence to this very, very messy church filled with sinners and saints? Well, first of all, from our text that I just read, I think you can see he actually does call them saints. He does, that's what he says. Now, surely, I mean, we must assume, like, if we go back and we look at the Greek real carefully, we, find, we may just believe that the word saint could actually be translated better in English, jerk or hypocrite or you name it. But in fact, no. The word saint literally is the word saint. In fact, he tells them twice in the passage, this messed up church filled with division and all sorts of strife, that they are, quote, sanctified. In other words, set apart saints. You see, Paul sees them as they are in Christ, not as their sins and struggles would suggest. From the beginning, Paul chooses to remind them of how God sees them before he goes into them about all of the issues that they are dealing with. Saints. Now, in our popular understanding of that word, uh, that probably connotates the uber-holy, nearly perfect person in your mind. And in one sense, uh, that is true. It's just that they aren't recognized for their own perfection or holiness, according to the scriptures, but rather Christ's perfection and holiness, according to the scriptures. A saint, in biblical terminology, is not someone who's been validated to do three miracles in their life. No, no, no. That was a teaching that came much, 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 much later. In biblical terms, a saint is merely someone who has been saved by God through the work of Jesus Christ and been declared righteous through faith in him, being set apart for service in him. That's it. So I can legitimately say, if you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, I can legitimately say to all of you that you are indeed saints. Whatever sins you walk in here with, whatever struggles you have, according to the biblical definition of the word, if you believe in Jesus, congratulations, you've got the title. And so Paul gives thanks for them. He writes, I quote, I give thanks to my God always for you. I find that interesting 
And a little funny because if you read the rest of the letter, you're going to find many times where he's like, I cannot believe you're doing this. What is wrong with you? You all are crazy. I should be taking you out. I mean, he's really frustrated with them. And yet first, he says, you know, no, no, no. I do want you to know, I give thanks for you. I recognize who God sees you as. And that makes me praise him. By the way, if you ever want to have your attitude change towards somebody immediately that you might have conflict with, I dare you, do this. Try to think of ways that you can be thankful for them. And do this even if you really want to have yourself challenged. Take a moment to pray, and in that prayer, do nothing but thank God for that person and see if your attitude doesn't change toward them. I know this from personal experience. I'm not talking about this in theory. I'm not just like, oh, that sounds like a cool thing. No, like I know, because there's been many a time that I've had you know, somebody that's bugged me or done something that I felt was wrong, and I've been angry, and I've wanted to call down you know, the vengeance of God upon them because they deserved it. And then my wife, who's generally more sanctified than me in every way, will say something like this to me. Honey, why don't we just thank God for them? And my first response is always, no. Like, I don't want to. I'm angry. I'm upset. I don't want to be thanking God for them. And then she'll be like, but, you know, isn't it like the gracious thing to do? And I'm like, yes. So... I'll pray, and initially I'm praying through gritted teeth for this person. And then I notice, as I begin to thank God for them, my attitude changes, my posture changes. By the end, I'm asking God to send down blessing upon them and asking his forgiveness of me for being such a judgmental jerk and for looking down upon them and how do I have the right? And my wife's done it again, you know. She's gotten me to thank God for them instead of curse them. So that's what Paul does. Paul looks and he says, you know, I thank God that he has made you saints. I thank God that he's declared you to be saints. In spite of your sins and in spite of your struggles, I thank God for that. But he's not done. He says to this messy church also that they are graced. Verse 4, I give thanks to God, to my God always for you, because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. Yes, they've got problems, but that doesn't mean they haven't received grace upon grace from the Father. Yes, you have got problems, and you will have problems in your life. That does not mean that grace upon grace has not been bestowed upon you as well. Your Father graces you. Again, if you want to see a difference in how you look at the people sitting all around you, Take time to remember that each of the people sitting around you are somebody that God found worthy to die for. That God says he forgives simply by trust in his son. It'll change you. It'll change your whole perspective about things. And I think Paul is starting off that way. He's going, okay, yeah, the, the church, they got, a, they got some baggage, man. But they have been recipients of grace, and I'm going to start there. I'm going to anchor them in who they are, who God says they are. Forgiven, graced people. 
during World War II, there was a lady named Corrie Ten Boom who was, along with her family, a prisoner in one of the Nazi death camps. And uh, she uh, was able to tell of her experience in the Holocaust uh, because she was able, she survived the concentration camps. However, her sister did not, and her sister actually had a very slow, agonizing death in the camp, and she was actually separated from her family. And after she survived and, and got out, she would go to numerous churches around the world and share her story and about how God had really given her the strength to endure when at one of the church she was speaking at, a heavy-set, balding man walked towards her and she instantly was filled with terror. And the reason she was filled with terror is because it was one of her former guards. She writes, now he was in front of me, hand thrust out, a fine message, Fraulein, how good it is to know that as you say, all our sins are forgiven and are at the bottom of the sea. Ten Boom writes, and I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. I mean, how could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women there? But I remembered him and the leather crop that swung from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors and my blood was frozen. He says, you mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. You know, I was a guard there. And I did some really terrible things. But I've become a Christian. And I know that God has forgiven me. But it would mean the world to me if you would extend forgiveness to me as well. And racing through this woman's mind were thoughts like, who does he think he is? Does he think with one word a handshake that he can wipe away my sister's awful death? All the harm done to my family, all the harm done to me, does he think that me just telling him that I forgive him is going to make this better? And yet she had been preaching of the power of forgiveness. And so silently she pleaded with God, help me. I don't have the feeling I can't do this I can lift my hand out toward his, but you have to supply the feeling, God. You have to supply. I cannot, I don't feel like forgiving him. And so she lifted his, her hand and put it into his. And she says that at that moment, when she touched his hand, tears came to her eyes and she said, I Forgive you, brother. And this is what she said. She said, with all my heart. And then she reported later, I have never known God's love so intensely as I did at that moment. When you look at the church around you, not through the eyes of their many mistakes, no longer you're part of a fellowship of People, you will see them. You will. It's just a fact. You'll see them in me, for sure. You already have, for sure. But instead, choose to look at them through the eyes of the one who has forgiven them by the death 
of his cross, then maybe you can learn to forgive them and know God's intense love for them. And so Paul praises this church, this messy church filled with sinners in the midst of their mess for the evidences of this grace of God working in their lives. He says in verse 5, In every way you were enriched in him, in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you were not lacking in any gift. Now what's interesting about this is if you know anything about the letter, I mean, if you were to go on and read, especially if you get into like chapters 10, 11, and 12, that area, uh, all the way really through 14, 12 through 14, you're going to see Paul scold them for abusing the very gifts that he's lauding them for here. Yes, they had abused the gifts. They had been given these gifts of speaking in tongues and uttering prophecies and doing all these things. But Paul is like, you know, you're using them all wrong later on. But first, he thanks God for giving them anything. It's an evidence of his grace in their life. And so he says, I thank God for you that he's graced you like this. Even though, yes, I'm going to have to correct the ways that you've mishandled them. I thank God that you were given these things. So Paul Paul says to this group of sinners in this church, number one, he's thankful that they're saints. Number two, he's thankful that they've been graced. And then number three, to start off, how do you begin with a messy church? He gives them a promise. He assures them that they will be sustained. In spite of their sin and many struggles, what does he say? Verse 8, he will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is one of my favorite things I've ever had come out of my mouth, ever. The word sustain there literally means to make firm or to hold firm, to hold fast. What Paul is saying to them is, in spite of all the sins that I'm going to have to correct you for because you're hurting each other and you're hurting other people and you're hurting yourself, in spite of all that, first, I want you to know who you are. You are held secure in his hands. Why? For the purpose of being declared guiltless when you stand before him at the judgment. He's got you. Before you hear anything else that I have to say, Corinthians, and boy, do I have it coming for you, know that he's sustaining you. And I'm confident in this. A number of years ago, uh, me and my family were strolling around PetSmart. This is back when I was pastor in California. We had no intention of getting anything or getting a pet or anything like that. We were just kind of strolling around PetSmart. And at that time, we had two boys, and one of my boys, Jude, I was swinging around. We did this all the time. Like, yay! 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 And I'm doing this, and then <gasps> I lose my grip. And he goes flying in the most out-of-control way I've ever seen a human fly. There was no control to it. And I can still remember it. It's as fresh as day. It's as if it happened today. I can remember the sound of his face hitting the ground, face first. Smack. And the first thing he did, he got up. He was bleeding. And when you see your little boy, I mean, he was he was little, little guy, bleeding. And his eye was already red and puffed up. And he got up and he was screaming, 
Why, Daddy, why? <laughs> and I was the worst dad in the history of the world at that moment. Everybody in the store thought that, of course, I had beat my kid. He's screaming, why, Daddy, why? And he's bleeding. And I'm rushing out to the car to get him to the hospital as quickly as I can. And we get him to the hospital. We found out that, indeed, I, I broke my son's face. There's not a, you can't put a cast on a face. There's nothing you can do. This little, my little guy just had to endure this fractured face. And the next day we bought a dog. <laughs> um, now, why do I tell you that story? Because, I, I mean, of course, I love to tell you stories where I look like the good dad and I look like the hero and I look great. And this story does nothing but make me look like the buffoon that I am. Well, here's why. I am a father that no matter how hard I try to hold on to my kids, will lose his grip. But your heavenly father cannot. He will never let go. He will hold on to you because he is determined to declare you guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's determined that when you stand before his judgment that you're going to be declared innocent. He's just determined. He's decided. He is holding fast to you. They had messed up in countless ways, this church in Corinth. And in big and small ways, you have too. But the gospel tells you, the glory of the gospel says, <laughs> that when you place your trust in Jesus, it's as if God doesn't see any of the mess. It's as if he only sees Jesus. One of my favorite quotes is from this a reformed counselor named David Pallison who says, God does, not, God does not love you just the way you are. God loves you just the way Jesus is. Jesus stands in God's field of vision. So then when he looks at you, that's all he sees. As the prophet Isaiah says, though your sins are as scarlet, God who justifies the ungodly, declares you white as snow. That's not going to end. It's not going away. And because of that, he declares you to be partners with Jesus. That's crazy. In this passage, that's what he actually says. You're a partner of Jesus. I mean, that means you're a part of his fellowship, not merely epiphany, not merely, uh, you know, some denomination, not merely Protestant or whatever the other dividing line you use. You are ultimately a partner of Jesus Christ. You're part of the fellowship of Jesus, of the Son of God himself. So, I mean, what's the answer? Like, what does Paul say? I mean, when you really need to deal with a church full of sinners and saints, what is Paul going to do? Well, first off, first off, I'm going to remind you of how much God is determined to save you? That's the short answer. 
Yes, you read the rest of the letter, man. I mean, he is going to lay into them. It's true. But first, no matter how much correction you might need, but first, anchor yourself in this church. Anchor yourself in this church. You are not your problems. You are not your weaknesses. You are not your sins. You, Epiphany, are saints. People thank God for you. You are the recipients of God's abundant, forgiving, amazing grace, and you are gifted. You are held in the hands of your sovereign God, guiltless, a friend and brother of Jesus Christ. And get this, as small and insignificant as we may be as a church and as imperfect as you may be as a church, as imperfect as your pastor is as a pastor, through Jesus Christ, well, I mean, here's the deal. I'm just going with what Paul's saying here. I mean, I'm using the word saint and grace and all of this stuff that he's talking about. Listen, through Christ, we're the perfect church. Let's pray. Father, thank you. For this encouraging word. There is time. And there will be times where correction is needed. It is. I know it's true in my own life. Regularly. All the time. But first. But first. And foremost. It is good to know. And be reminded that we are saints who have been graced, who are being held and sustained so that we might be declared guiltless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. For this we rejoice, O God, in Jesus' name.